0: Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, MGM Stories. Every episode in this season was inspired by a suggestion made by our listeners on our forum, which you can find at youmustrememberthispodcast.com. Listener Rory P. writes, I'd love to see an episode detailing the tragic love triangle between Robert Walker, Jennifer Jones, and David O'Selznick." Walker met Jennifer Jones while they were studying acting together, and they ended up getting married and having two kids together. Jones was discovered by Selznick, and he ended up becoming her mentor. Jones left Robert Walker for Selznick, and he went into a downward spiral, suffering from alcohol addiction, and he even did a stint in a psychiatric ward. He never really recovered from it. Thanks for the suggestion, Rory. I've long been fascinated by Jennifer Jones's screen presence, but I knew little about the lives of her her husband Robert Walker, or her second husband, David O. Selznick. In trying to research just this love triangle, per Rory's request, I became swept away by the saga of Selznick, whose first wife was Irene Mayer Selznick, the daughter of Louis B. Mayer. When I started writing, I realized that in order to understand Jones's relationship to Walker and Selznick, we first have to talk about Selznick, one of 20th century Hollywood's most incredible, creative, Destructive characters, and his relationships with both Irene Mayer and her father, and the path he cut through MGM, RKO, and Paramount before establishing his own elite independent studio, something no one else had managed or even really dared to try in the 1930s. In order to understand why Selznick threw away his life for Jones and put all of his eggs in the basket of her stardom, We have to understand what it was he was throwing away, what he had already achieved, and what he lost. So this is going to be a two-parter. Today we'll talk about Selznick's rise through Hollywood from the 1920s through the early 1940s, his courtship and marriage of Irene Mayer, his relationship with Louis B. Mayer, and the film that he always knew would make it into the headline of his obituary, Gone with the Wind. Join us, won't you? for part one of the story of David O. Selznick. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So, do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/remember. 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 David O. Selznick grew up in and around his father, Louis J. Selznick's New York film companies. Louis Selznick was a self-made man who legendarily broke into the business by walking into Universal's film manufacturing plant in Fort Lee, New Jersey, claiming an empty desk and hanging a sign on it proclaiming himself general manager. Selznick went on to run a number of companies through the teens, through a combination of charisma, pluck, Hard work and lucky mergers. Louis V. Mayer had briefly served as distributor for films produced by L.J. Selznick in or around 1917, but Mayer backed out of the deal because of his low opinion of Selznick. Louis Selznick was a drinker, a gambler, and a womanizer who Mayer thought was trying to shortcut his way into building an empire. In many ways, David, who had begun working for his father's film company when he was a teenager, was his father's son. But at the same time, the father's eventual bankruptcy and total loss of an $11 million amassed fortune had deeply affected his family, and David had learned from L.J. Selznick's failures. When he arrived in Hollywood in 1926, David had a model of how not to succeed in show business, and he was determined not to add shame to the Selznick name. David Selznick was such a go-getter that, despite L.B. Mayer's misgivings, he landed a two-week trial at MGM, after which he landed a job, first as script reader, and then shortly thereafter as supervisory producer under Irving Thalberg. Selznick was so broke at first that he took the city bus every day from the Villa Carlotta apartments at the base of Beachwood Canyon, where he lived with his brother Myron and their friend the director Louis Milestone, all the way to the MGM lot in Culver City. Young David Selznick was a lot like young Alexander Hamilton, as depicted in the musical Hamilton. He wasn't a bastard orphan, but he was incredibly ambitious, self-confident, He was obsessed with proving himself. He wanted to do everything all at once. He wrote endless letters and memos. And he loved telling people exactly what he thought. At a New Year's Eve ball in December 1926, David was roped into escorting 20-year-old Irene Mayer, the daughter of Selznick's boss, Louis B. Mayer. David didn't want to be there, He wanted to spend New Year's Eve with a woman he could be his usual, uh, very high-libido self with, which wasn't advisable with the boss's daughter. So, he drank. When Irene accused her date on this Prohibition-era night of being drunk, he responded,
2: Not drunk enough.
0: David proceeded to give Irene a lecture.
2: Listen, Miss Maya, let me tell you something. I was once a much bigger prince than you are, a princess. I know all about it, and let me tell you something. There's nothing to it. Don't take it too seriously.
0: As obnoxious as Irene thought David was in the moment, his words stayed with her. They ran into each other again at a party in March 1927. He tried to kiss her in a stairwell. Amused but taken aback, Irene pushed him away. You don't even know who I am, she said.
2: Well, yes, I do
0: came the response. Get the name
2: from New Year's Eve.
0: Irene began joining David and his gang for Sunday tennis parties. Her father, remembering his falling out with David's father, discouraged her.
1: Keep away from that schnook,
0: Mayor told his daughter.
1: He'll be a bum, just like his father.
0: But this was nothing new. Mayer and his wife, Margaret, had so many rules about who his daughters could date that his eldest daughter, Edie, started going around saying, they just don't want us to get married ever. On the contrary, Mayer said,
1: I will never tell you who to marry. Absolutely free, any choice you like. However, I reserve the right to say who you go out with.
0: But it wasn't Mayer who ended Selznick's first run at MGM. And in fact, Irene's father would try to hire Selznick again and again. David O. Selznick stands today as perhaps Hollywood history's greatest writer. Not of screenplays, but of letters, telegrams, and memos. In his early years, he had a habit of using inter-office communiques to explain to people more powerful than he was exactly how they should be doing their jobs. This was one thing on the page, but then in the midst of a disagreement at the MGM commissary with Irving Thalberg and unit producer Hunt Stromberg, as Selznick put it,
2: I told Thalberg in the rather strong language of youth that he didn't know what he was talking about, and I was fired.
0: But Irene and David's courtship continued, even after Selznick had moved on to Paramount, and even though David was simultaneously involved with, and by all appearances in love with, actress Jean Arthur... Years passed, and Selznick wanted to marry Irene, but Louis B. Mayer insisted that Irene's older sister Edie get married before Irene went to the altar. In 1929, David gave Irene an engagement ring, which he wore discreetly on a chain around her neck. In March 1930, Edie finally married 20th Century Fox executive William Getz in a massive ceremony described as the social event of the year which apparently started the white tie fashion trend. Two days later, Selznick went to his former boss's office with his beloved in tow and asked for permission to marry his daughter. To Selznick, this was just tradition, a formality. To Mayer, it was something he could grant or withhold. When Selznick told Mayer he wanted to have the wedding in April so that they could go on a honeymoon before the fall production schedule ramped up, Mayer said it would look unseemly to throw another wedding so soon after the massive wedding he just threw for
1: Edie. We just finished the biggest wedding that ever happened in this town. The people haven't recovered yet. They went broke buying presents. You expect them to dig down again and buy presents just like that? give them time
0: he asked selznick to wait until june selznick accused Mayer of trying to meddle with the paramount production slate and then he appealed to him as a man to quote irene her future husband spoke to her father quote of the physical strain of a young man in love
2: i cannot wait any longer what kind of hell do you think i go through
0: Eventually, David stormed out, and he and Irene were married on April 29, 1930. The ceremony started 45 minutes late because Mayer had insisted on a private conference with Selznick before things could get started. Finally, Mayer emerged and said to Irene,
1: You may start the wedding.
3: Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash audio. Visit IXL.com slash audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
0: Mayer would become supportive of the union. Irene gave him his first grandchild, and LB gave his daughter a mansion across the street from Pick Fair. But there was a point where lines had to be drawn. When Mayer bought a bunch of 20th Century Fox stock and pledged to deed a percentage of it to his daughters and their husbands, Selznick refused his share. And when Mayer sent Irene a diamond necklace shortly after her wedding, David sent it back to Mayer with a note reading,
2: When I want my wife to have a present like that, I'll buy them.
0: This was Selznick showing off the comparatively small amount of power that he had, Of course, Mayer had more. In 1931, Mayer was able to lobby his fellow studio heads to block Selznick from launching an independent production company. Instead, Selznick spent a year at RKO. When he joined the studio as vice president in charge of production, RKO was on the brink of financial disaster. Selznick cleaned house, reorganized the way the studio used their physical assets, brought in future stars like Katharine Hepburn and Fred Astaire, and entrusted producer Marion Cooper to turn $675,000 and a model gorilla into King Kong. When Thalberg was away recovering from his 1932 heart attack, Selznick ended up back at MGM, where he had a solid run, beginning with his first film, the massive hit comedy Dinner at Eight, and extending through Anna Karenina and A Tale of Two Cities in 1935. Nick Skank at Lowe's was so impressed that he started lobbying Selznick to replace Mayer. Selznick told his wife about this, who told her father. In response, Mayer offered Selznick an extremely lucrative extension of his current contract, which Selznick turned down because he was hurt by public gossip that he had advanced through nepotism.
2: All past accomplishment is wiped out because this is a business that forgets yesterday at dawn today, and any appreciation of future accomplishments is impossible because I'm not an executive here, as I believe, by right of six or seven years of struggle, but a relative here by right of marriage.
0: He was more determined than ever to start his own independent company. Mayer showed up at Irene and David's house to confront not David, but Irene, who stood dumbstruck as her father essentially accused her of treason.
1: We talk to that boy every day. He listens. He's interested. The next morning, we have to begin again. Something happens overnight. Is this where my opposition is? Right here in my own family? I happen to know you people are broke. Are you in a position to turn down a million dollars a year
0: they weren't. David Selznick had gambling debts. He also believed that in order to earn the confidence of the people he wanted to work with, he had to pretend like he didn't need their money. So from the beginning of their marriage, he and Irene lived beyond their means, and David's extravagance only got worse as time went on. But they did turn down Mayer's offer, and with the help of Selznick's best friend, the heir Jock Whitney— Selznick International Pictures was born. Selznick International Pictures made 11 pictures between 1936 and 1940. From the perspective of history, Selznick's batting average during this period was pretty incredible. The company's third film was the first film version of A Star is Born, co-written by Dorothy Parker and shot in Technicolor. In addition to codifying one of Hollywood's touchstone myths about itself— ironically stemming from Selznick's desire to tell the truth about the industry, it was the first color film to be nominated for the Best Picture Oscar. That same year, they produced the Carol Lombard screwball classic, Nothing Sacred. In 1939, Selznick introduced Ingrid Bergman to American audiences with the English-language remake of Intermezzo, and six months later came the last Selznick International release, Rebecca, Rebecca the only Alfred Hitchcock film to win a Best Picture Oscar. But Selznick movies almost always went over budget, and only three of the company's first nine movies turned a profit. And by 1939, Selznick was personally in debt by over $100,000. He needed a grand slam. And he hit one in December 1939. ¶¶
3: Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. War, war, war! This war talk's spoiling all the fun at every party this spring.
1: That's what's wrong with you. You should be kissed an orphan, and often, by someone who knows how.
3: And God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again.
0: David O. Selznick produced the highest-grossing film of all time because MGM turned it down. There are a couple of different stories about this. The simple, most oft-repeated one is that Louis B. Mayer considered buying the rights to gun with the wind, and Irving Thalberg said, Forget it, Louis. No Civil War picture ever made a nickel. I'm not sure I believe this anecdote, because at that time, Birth of a Nation was considered the biggest hit Hollywood ever produced. And also, this would have had to have happened in 1935 or 1936, and Mayer wasn't exactly jumping to take Thalberg's advice at that point. I'm more inclined to believe the story that has William Fadiman, who worked in the MGM New York office, getting his hands on the unedited manuscript of Margaret Mitchell's soon-to-be best-selling novel then calling Mayer and asking if he could buy it. Because he knew the movie would cost an enormous amount of money to make, Mayer told Fadiman that he had to get the okay from corporate chief Nick Skank. Skank had a cold, so Fadiman went to his house in Long Island and pitched him the story of Scarlett O'Hara and Rhett Butler. When the pitch was over, Skank said, Young man, Gone with the Wind is a title? Gone with the Wind? What does this mean? It's about what? A war? Who needs war? Everybody dies? Well, some do, Fatiman said. Skank fired back. Everybody dies. It's sad. You tell Louie no. So, Selznick got a shot at the property and he bought it for 50 grand. But he couldn't afford to actually make the movie, and Mayer knew this. He also knew that Selznick had his heart set on casting Clark Gable, king of the MGM lot, as Rhett Butler. Mayer offered his son-in-law a deal to purchase the property outright, allowing Selznick to produce the movie as an MGM production. But Selznick still felt the need to prove himself independently of Mayer's studio or anyone else's. They finally negotiated a compromise. MGM would loan Selznick Gable and contribute half of the film's estimated $3 million production budget. They would distribute the film for a fee of 15% of the overall gross, after which MGM and Selznick would split the profits. In exchange, Selznick would pay Gable's salary and bonuses. Mayer tried to get Selznick to agree to hire W.S. Van Dyke, notorious in the industry for his efficiency, as director, But Selznick knew that when it came to Van Dyke, efficiency meant pretty much printing the first take every time, as long as the actors more or less remembered their lines and the set remained standing. Selznick wanted more than that, and he held firm on his choice, George Cukor. This was, in a nutshell, the difference between the MGM model and the Selznick model. MGM cranked out a lot of good movies— Selznick's companies would make just a few movies, and each one would be really expensive. But each one would also aim to be exceptional. The film went into production. Mayer was concerned about the projected length of the movie. He fretted,
1: They'd stone Christ if he came back and spoke for four hours.
0: And even Selznick had to admit that the rushes Cooker was producing weren't, as his wife put it, magic. So Selznick fired Cooker, who was one of his best friends, and who was then assigned to direct The Women. Victor Fleming was taken off the set of The Wizard of Oz, and he was assigned to finish Gone with the Wind. Two directors, three masterpieces, no hard feelings. In the end, Gone with the Wind cost nearly $4.25 million to make. That was a record-breaking sum at the time, But Selznick felt he had put more on the line than, as he put it, other people's money. In 1937, in the midst of the struggle to get Gone with the Wind to the screen, he had begun taking Benzedrine in order to keep up the energy and long hours that had come effortlessly to him ten years earlier. The drug changed Selznick's personality. Or rather, it amplified an arrogance and self-assuredness that had always been there. Irene Selznick would say that the drug was the worst thing that ever happened to her husband. But in the late 1930s, Selznick thought it was saving his life. It was certainly the only defense he had against the never-ending onslaught of Gone with the Wind's production. As he wrote in a letter to Nick Skank before the film's release,
2: This picture has done so much to me physically and has robbed me of so much, including my entire personal life for so long, that my feelings about it go beyond mere commercial conviction and are on the highly emotional side. I've taken a terrible beating from the industry and the press, and even the public, for about three years. No matter how well the picture finally does, it will always be questionable as to whether it has been worth what I put myself through and my associates and employees through.
0: It took years for Gone with the Wind to become historically expensive, but it was evident from the first preview that it was going to make an historic amount of money. Today, when adjusted for inflation, by several different calculations, its box office numbers are still unbeaten. The massive success of Gone with the Wind brought a lot of good things to MGM, but it was still rightfully perceived as a Selznick picture, and Mayer was proud of his son-in-law's achievement. David Selznick was, as his wife Irene well knew, a hedonist. He had trouble saying no to any kind of pleasure, and throughout their marriage, he was known around town to be a flirt. Secretaries reported frequently overhearing the telltale sound of Selznick chasing actresses around his desk. Irene once caught him trying to kiss Loretta Young at a party, and she knew he had some kind of obsession with Joan Fontaine, the star of Rebecca. Another of his contract stars... Shirley Temple, reported that on her 17th birthday, Selznick made a pass and issued a warning.
2: Shirley, if you hold out, you could be loaned out.
0: For years, Irene had felt widowed by Gone with the Wind. But in August of 1939, the Selznick marriage was healthy enough that, after attending a preview of The Wizard of Oz without her, David wrote his wife a note which began as a summary of the day's business and concluded as a love letter. Nine years into their marriage, Selznick wrote,
2: I've been thinking of you, and I've decided to marry you, if you'll have me. I'm a little middle-aged, to be sure. I have a hammer tone. I run into things. I'm ex-arrogant and once wanted to be a big shot. I snore loudly, drink exuberantly, cuddle, i.e. snuggle expansively, work excessively, play enthusiastically, and my future is drawing to a close. But I'm tall and Jewish, and I do love you. And I do mean you.
0: But something happened on Oscar night in February 1940 that would point to things to come. Irene and David hosted a pre-ceremony cocktail party at their house in Beverly Hills. When it was time to leave for the ceremony, David got in a limo with Clark Gable and Vivian Lee and left Irene at their house without saying goodbye. Goodbye without any plan for meeting up at the ceremony. The last host standing, Irene had to wait for the last guest to leave in their car. She arrived at the awards ceremony late and refused to join her husband at his table. Both were too stubborn to go to the other. Gone with the Wind won eight Oscars that night, and David himself got to keep the trophy for Best Picture, as well as the Honorary Irving Thalberg Award. He and Irene went to bed that night in separate rooms, without speaking. Irene later said, I never got over it, and he never got over it. It hung on. This was Irene's version of the story, and as Selznick's biographer, David Thompson, notes, it doesn't quite match newsreel footage of the night, which shows Irene entering the ballroom not far behind David. But that this was how she remembered it is indicative of the ways in which she felt like she was competing with her husband's greatest cinematic accomplishment for his attention and the very real feeling she had of being left behind as he
4: skyrocketed forward. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master new skill.
0: In late March or early April, not more than nine months after David had written her that sweet proposal note, Irene aborted what would have been their third child. When she had told David that she was pregnant, he had said to her, you must be mistaken. As Irene later put it, when I tentatively suggested an abortion, he didn't demur. After the triumph of Gone with the Wind, Selznick was exhausted and still basically broke. He liquidated Selznick International Pictures in exchange for personal financial security and in order to buy himself some time to start a new company called David O. Selznick Productions. He brought into the new company assets in the form of performers he had under contract, including Joan Fontaine, Vivian Lee, and Ingrid Bergman. After marrying Laurence Olivier, Lee was essentially refusing to work. But Ingrid Bergman was a workaholic, and while Selznick was in between production companies, he made a tidy income just on loaning Bergman out to other producers. Selznick would have happily pulled the same trick on Joan Fontaine, but he believed that Fontaine had intentionally made herself so difficult to work with that no one wanted to borrow her. So, by mid-1941... When Selznick walked into a New York casting office, he may well have been looking for a beautiful actress who, like Bergman, wanted to work, but who, unlike Fontaine and Lee, was also happy to allow Selznick to tell her what to do. And we'll tell that story next week. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our editor is Henry Malofsky, and our research intern is Ali Gemmel. We had two very special guests on the podcast this week who we'd like to thank. Adam Goldberg, played David O'Selznick, and Craig Mazin returned to the show as Louis B. Mayer. You must remember this is part of the Panoply Network. You can find the whole lineup of Panoply podcasts at iTunes.com Panoply. One Panoply show you should check out is Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I will be on Little Gold Men later this week, talking about the David Selznick saga, and I'll give a sneak preview of the second half of this story, in which Selznick ruins his marriage and threatens his career by falling in love with his personal Galatea. Find it by going to iTunes and searching for Little Gold Men. If you like You Must Remember This, you can find us on iTunes, too. And subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show there helps new people find our show, as does tweeting about it. Our handle on Twitter is at RememberThisPod. And don't forget that at our website, YouMustRememberThisPodcast.com, You can find more information about this episode and other episodes, including show notes with information about our sources, because you can't put footnotes on audio. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? That Good night.
1: Say. Okay. One more thing. Why do you assume you're the smartest in the room? Why do you assume you're the smartest in the room? Why do you assume you're the smartest in the room? See, that attitude may be your doom. Oh, why do you write like you're running out of time? Right day and night like you're running out of time. Every day you fight like you're running out of time. Keep on fighting in the meantime.